Well, it is uh, great to be back. It's been three weeks, but <clears throat> ends up being a month gone. Haven't seen you all. I have to remember your names again. So, been a while. Um, just always amazing to me how just almost a little bit of time away can make you feel somewhat distant. All right, well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, deals with the genealogy of Jesus. And chapter 2 deals with the infancy of Jesus. my place in Micah where we'll be looking at this morning. <clears throat> Whoops. Oh, sorry. have to get a little button pushed. All right. The early life of Jesus. Now, the approach to the Gospels has been, just remind, it's been about a month, so just a reminder, some of these slides you see for a while and they gradually disappear. Uh, just wanted to sort of just present this one last time. This is our, at least my, approach to the Gospels. Um, of course, we have four Gospels, and they all have prologues, and those prologues are of different length and a little bit different content. And my goal is to go through each one of the Gospels and take their prologue up to where they all have a common narrative uh, beginning, so to speak, and that would be with John the Baptist. Just a little reminder of uh, the differences in the links of the prologues of these four Gospels. They all have different purposes. They're written by different people to different audiences, perhaps, or to a different angle on things. Uh, they're written in the end to all people. <clears throat> um, but the Gospel writers, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, just have different approaches, particularly in their prologues. The prologues and sort of the ending of the Gospels are where there's a really uh, big difference there. What is common among them all is they are all clear at the beginning, up front, that Jesus is the Messiah. In today's world where you have uh, Satan's emissaries out there always casting doubt, always undermining the word of God, there are these scholars, so-called, who uh, for whatever reason they are, they, they don't know the Lord for sure, try to undermine that uh, the Gospels are presenting something that is continuous throughout the Old Testament. Some of them will actually say that the, Messiah, the messianic content of the Old Testament is very difficult to grasp. Well, it wasn't difficult for the gospel writers to grasp. It shouldn't be difficult for Christians to grasp. Apparently it's difficult for them. But just remember that all four gospel writers from the beginning present who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And they also present who Jesus is not only in his office of Messiah, but in his person as the human and divine being, Jesus, the Son of God. Each of them, in their own way, present this clearly and indisputably, unless, of course, that's what you think your job is, is to dispute things. <clears throat> we are focused on Matthew, and we are now in the early life of Matthew and dealing with Herod. That is what chapter 2 is about. Just a, a bit of a review, because the, uh, the last time we looked at Matthew, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and those are very much part of the context of the whole chapter of Matthew, really, or at least the first half uh, for our purposes, and we just need to have that in our mind. 
Last time uh, that we dealt with this, I sort of dealt with the background material um, for these first two verses. And so just a sort of a quick review to run through it. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, after he was born here, Matthew, he has been talked about in chapter 1 about the genealogy. He's talked about the conception and birth of Jesus. He's presented Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture, that he is the, the Savior. He is Jesus, which means Savior, and that is, that is how we should know him. Um, and now after Jesus was born, we're starting to be given historical context. And so Jesus has been born when all this occurs. And he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The place is clearly identified. No way to be mistaken. There actually is another or was another Bethlehem in the land of Palestine, what we call Palestine today anyway. And <clears throat> Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's a very clear designation. And Bethlehem has a history. It's six miles south of Jerusalem. It has a 3,700-year history, starting with the tomb of Rachel in Genesis 35 and 49, uh, home of a judge, uh, infamous for Micah the Levite, a uh, story about a concubine. It's famous for the setting of Boaz and Ruth. It's the hometown of David the king. Uh, it was a rallying point of mighty men. These are just places in the Bible where Bethlehem is significant. And now it takes on its greatest significance, which Micah the prophet gives to this town. Um, they are the birthplace of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Matthew is giving us some more setting. Usually when you're talking about a situation, you want to know who, what, when, and where. And so here we're given the, the where of things, or rather the, the when of things. He's told us where. It's Bethlehem of Judea, and now in the days of Herod the king. And remember that Herod was a king during a time that we read a lot about. A lot of movies made about Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, Caesar Augustus. Um, by the way, Caesar Augustus was actually a very prominent figure in history. He was one incredible person. He was a worldly man, but as worldly men go, he uh, was quite a significant uh, character in history. But Herod lived during these times, probably uh, trafficked or even talked and encountered these people. He was born in 73 B.C., <clears throat> and he was appointed king of Judea in 40 B.C., and so the days of Herod the king take from 40 B.C. to his death around 4 B.C. So he was a king for about 40 years. And toward the end of that, his reign, uh, Jesus is born. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. There's all kinds of attempts to speculate and get closer to the exact time. But uh, all the gospel writers tell us is he was born at this time. And that's really all we need to know. Uh, it's historical circumstance. It's good to talk about the others that's of interest, uh, trying to pinpoint... Uh, eclipses of the moon and things like that, um, dig through history uh, from secular historians of that day. But it's enough to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. And <clears throat> Matthew says, you need to know about something that happened, about some men. And these, these men who come, the magi from the east, these men are really the center of the story of this first half of chapter 2. Herod is there and he's prominent, but these magi are the focus of the story. And it refers to men of that era who were scholars and advisors to kings. Originally, the name magos, or plural magi, originally meant a priestly caste in Persia. So the term itself was kind of late in history. But the office or the position of these kinds of fellows is throughout history. 
You can go all the way back to Genesis and see it with Pharaoh. He had magi. They didn't call them magi. They called them wise men then. But it's the same, a different name for the same group. And these were the scholars of the day. These were the, quote, wise men of the day, people you would go to consult about what do you do in war, what do you do in times of this circumstance or that. They were consultants to the king usually or to, to uh, satraps and other people. They, all of them, <clears throat> in a lot of layers, had these men on the side who were advisors. We would today call them like uh, the president's cabinet. That's what they functioned as. But these men, part of the day, and it was just, it's just everybody thought this way. They were astrologers, so they would bring astrology into the mix of their advising the kings. These men represented the deep state, if you will. And that's why <clears throat> the Magi continued while kings you know, were up and down. They were that background deep state just making things happen and turning the wheels of government. Some were honest, many were charlatans. Um, later, magi, the term itself, becomes associated with the magic and the occult, and so we have sort of a negative tone on it, whereas you'll see in Matthew, it's really not a negative tone. They were just magi from the East, and <clears throat> we could just read these were bureaucrats, experienced bureaucrats from somewhere to the East of Judea, uh, going to be Babylon, think that, think uh, over toward Persia, that kind of thing. They arrived at Jerusalem. These men traveled for months to get to Jerusalem. This is an example of what it would be to travel from Babylon. We don't know that that's their place of origin, but it could have been. The east is just the general statement. But they traveled for months. It was a dangerous journey. It was an arduous journey. It was an unpleasant journey. Uh, but they arrived at Jerusalem. And what did they start saying as soon as they got there? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. That is what, he's, what they're dealing with. Who is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is the who of the questions you might ask. This is what they were looking for. And this term king of the Jews is a term that would be in the mouth of a Gentile. An Israelite would never say this. An Israelite would never say king of the Jews. It's a very much a Gentile phrase. It's a Gentile way of looking at things. So the authenticity of Matthew's account is, is, is very clear. Um, uh, and they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? His, his kingship is a birthright. The stars, these guys are astrologers, and somehow the stars signified his birth. And when stars signify the birth of somebody, it's of great importance. And they are absolutely confident that his birth has occurred. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. Now, I was reading last night uh, up on uh, stars, uh, what star could mean, supernova, and the history of supernovas, and all the supernovas that have been recorded. Uh, it's been, it was actually an interesting read. Um, <clears throat> conjunctions of planets. Any, does everybody know what a conjunction of the planets is? We just had one in December. A conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. It's when Saturn and Jupiter are spinning around and around, and, and from our vantage point at some point, Saturn <clears throat> kind of overtakes Jupiter, and you can see them together. One, they're actually very next to each other. Um, and the, the reason I bring this up is because I found out that the one that just happened a few months ago in December, there's only been four that have come that close in the last 800 years. So if you didn't go outside and look at it, then well, it's another 800 years uh, for you to try to roll the dice and get one on uh, being that close together. It was a very significant conjunction. There's supernova where stars explode, <clears throat> and they leave a trail. They leave dust for 
thousands of years so they can tell when this has happened, when they appear out there. There's potentially a comet. Was this a comet? A comet that has a periodicity that is it comes around every so many years, but that periodicity is just so, so long. It could be 10,000 years. We haven't seen it again. We won't see it again for thousands of years. We probably never because the Lord will come back. This is a picture taken by a four-inch telescope by my um, son-in-law with a friend. And this is, if you were to look at the conjunction of planets through a telescope, this is what it looks like. If you look at it with the naked eye, that's what it looks like. And so something like this would be a significant event in the heavens. And these guys were astrologers. And these guys would say, okay, this has come, and it's with planet Jupiter that was always associated with kingly things happening. And it's a conjunction with the planet Saturn, perhaps. And Saturn means the seventh day of the week, seven. So seven is the Jews' Sabbath. I mean, that's how they would calculate things. I don't know how astrology works. Don't really want to know. But something to that effect. So in, in their world of calculation, they, they knew that there was someone who was king of the Jews, and they had access. These were, these were men who were scholars. These were men who would have the scriptures of many countries around them and literature of many countries, and no doubt they had before them and had read uh, in numbers what a star shall come forth from Jacob, 24:17, a scepter shall <clears throat> rise from Israel. And they saw the heavens changing because that was their job to look at it every night. And they knew that this was happening. Remember, these scriptures had been around in the Middle East for 600 years at least from the time when Israel was taken captive into those countries in the East. So they had that available. And their purpose was we've come to worship him. They had the what settled. They had everything settled. They had the who settled, born king of the Jews. They had the wind settled. We saw his star in the east. We know this has happened now. They have their purpose settled. We've come to worship him. And the only thing that they have left is to deal with where is he? That's what they didn't know. And so they asked that question, and that brings us to where we begin this morning. And let's pray and just ask the Lord to uh, speak to us. Heavenly Father, we come before your word, and here we have this record of the birth of your son, of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, coming into the world. We can sit down and read this and just watch it happen. And we see these magi, we don't know how many there were. There could have been way more than three. Um, Lord, we, uh, we've heard traditions and things, but we just, we're just looking at your record here. But what we do know is these men came from a place of exceeding darkness. These men came from a dark world where sorcery and magic and the occult were the standard ways of doing business, even in government. Lord, how dark were these nations. And yet you reached in to these men's hearts. You took your truth and you spoke to them. And you lay a hold of them. And you spoke to them from your word. The content, Lord, that we have here is beyond something they could ever discern from the stars. But at the same time, your word talked about a star. And they saw it. And they saw it in the heavens. And Lord, you connected those things together in their minds and in their hearts. And these became, we don't know how, we don't know the individual story of each one of them. You do. Lord, you wrote those stories with great care and great love. And you laid a hold of these men. 
and put in their hearts together to come this great distance from these dark lands to worship your son. Lord, as we're here this morning, we just pray that their faith would inspire us. Their commitment would grip us. And Lord, what they came to see, who they came to worship, that he would just be more and more our object of worship, our object of love, our object of joy, of exceeding joy. Um, Lord Jesus, only you can reach into people's hearts. I can't. The best of preachers can't. All we can do is proclaim your word, and we rely on your Holy Spirit and you to do the work in our lives and in the lives of all who hear. So, Lord, that is our confidence this morning, that your Holy Spirit can cross boundaries of nations, boundaries of darkness, and reach into souls and save from sin and bring the newness of life that our brother spoke about earlier. And just pray, Lord, you would just bless your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Herod the king heard this. He heard that some men had arrived from the east. They were notable men. They probably came and, you know, they, they were obviously not some peasants walking through. These, these men were used to being in king's courts. These were significant men. They spoke well. They thought well. They communicated well. They were ambassadors. I mean, these guys weren't just run-of-the-mill people or general people just sort of walking through town or some tradesmen peddling their wares or some commercial people bringing, you know, a caravan of camel through. These were significant individuals. And it was reported to him, was it the, just the general buzz in the town, which there would be? Pretty sure if you, when you, when you live in a smaller town or when you live in a place like Jerusalem, um, any new news is, is buzz. I mean, you don't have a TV to numb your brain at night. And so anything that pops up in the, the discussions that are going through the town, and that goes really fast, uh, it's probably about five milliseconds per second. The fastest network I know of is a gossip chain. Uh, it's faster than any network we build at work. <clears throat> Information travels, and it travels quickly. And it traveled to Herod particularly because he probably had a network of spies. That was just the kind of guy he was. He didn't trust anybody. Nobody trusted him either. And this information came to him. The assumption of these magi who are important people, they're not insignificant people, they're not dummies, they're scholars. The assumption about one being born king, an event that has already occurred. The fact that this birth is associated with his star. It's not just a star, it's his star. And this is a very compelling event in that day and age. We might look back with all of our intellectual sophistication that we have now and our scientific orientation and think, well, that's kind of foolish to consider that somebody had a star. Um, but back then, I mean, that was, that was uh, cutting edge knowledge, cutting edge information. And they came with their purpose to worship him. All of this came to Herod's attention and he was troubled number of reasons why he would be troubled. First of all, the very content of what is being told. There is one who is born king of the Jews. One who will usurp him. One who has a right to the throne to rule the nation of Israel versus his appointment by a foreign nation. 
Herod was not a Jew, and he desperately wanted to be regarded as one and be esteemed as one. And here is the true king of the Jews that is coming, is here, and he has a birthright to the throne that Herod is sitting on. That would be a troubling to a man like him. It'd be troubling to anybody. I mean, sure, everyone would have to sort of wrestle with a bit of jealousy, but for, for Herod, he's having to wrestle with this to the bone because of who he is, his love of power, his self-interest. And there was a star behind this. This wasn't just some, you know, rumor that's going around. These are credible men talking about a, in that day, a credible event. There's credibility behind it. This is serious. This is a challenge now to his kingship that he's never experienced before. See, he's had his challenges. He backed the wrong guy when it was uh, Caesar and uh, Pompey. Or Caesar and Mark Anthony, rather. He backed Mark Anthony, and Mark Anthony lost. In those days, when the guy you're backing loses, you lose too. But he had the ability to actually go to Caesar Augustus and talk his way out of it. So this guy was used to dealing with the politics of Rome itself. And yet here's something that's more challenging than anything that's occurred to him so far. Herod was a cruel and erratic ruler. He was capable of unmentionable brutality. It's said that when he died, he had given orders that on his death he would have thousands of Jews executed so that people would mourn when he died. This is how distorted this man was. Thankfully, it wasn't executed after he was dead, and everybody went, well, we don't have to listen to him anymore. But that's what he wanted. The word for troubled here, he was troubled, is a very strong word. He was deeply troubled. He was paranoid troubled. He was obsessed troubled. This occupied every waking thought. He probably had bad dreams about it. There was nothing else he could focus on but this. His reign is now challenged. It also says, in all Jerusalem with him. All who knew Herod, all who had been used to Herod's rule for 40 years, knew that when Herod had troubles, everybody else was going to get troubles. It was going to roll down on them. This was a, a ruler who was quite intelligent, quite capable in terms of gifts and abilities. He was a ruler who had accomplished many things. He had built one of the seven wonders of the world in that day, the temple. He had quashed the army of the Parthians. No one else had been able to do that. At one point in one situation in a, fam in a famine, he actually opened all his coffers and fed the Jews for many, many months and kept them alive. So he had done actually a good thing at one time and was known for that. But the older he got, the more corrupt he got. Instead of getting more mellow in his old age, he became more paranoid, more troubled, more his focus to hold on to what he had. And so all, all knew that when Herod was troubled, most likely troubles would roll down on them. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. So what does Herod do? He gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. In the first century, 
when such reports were taken seriously. So he's like, okay, I want to find out some information about this because this information matches the scriptures. So I'm going to go to the guys who handle the scriptures, who know the scriptures, who present the scriptures, at least as far as he understood it. He's the king over Judea. He was installed by the Romans, so he can summon such a group at any time. And the chief priests, which were all the various priests, it would be the high priest then, it would be priests from before, it would be all the temple priests. They had 24 courses of priests, so there's all these priests in the temple uh, and uh, all of its apparatus that they ran it. And in this case, it would be the scribes. Because his question was about the scriptures, so he wanted the scribes, the religious scholars to come. Herod was pretty smart, and he said, I want to get the best information possible. And he inquired of them this one question, where was the Messiah to be born? That's the question of the Magi. They knew when, they knew who, they knew why they were there, they just didn't know where, and here was Herod. He had already made the connection that king of the Jews meant the Messiah. And so notice that the Magi refer to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Here, he is referred to as Messiah. The equation was made. He now, like the Magi, wanted to know where this birth has occurred. And we find out later in the chapter that it was for a reason very different from why the Magi were asking that question. And so these scribes and chief priests answered him. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Now these scribes have a ready answer. We don't know how they transmitted this. It says they said to him, but they also may have written it down. We don't know. But they made it clear to him what it was. And it's important to know that this answer that we see right here that's highlighted and the quote from Micah is what the scribes present to Herod. You get into the commentaries and sometimes they're debating about, and we'll see in a minute, how that the Micah quote is kind of a little loose when it comes to the, the Micah in the Old Testament. And they all debate, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? And, and very few of them ever observe, wait a minute. Matthew is not doing his own version of Micah. He's simply telling us what the scribes told Herod. And all those people who make it their business nowadays to undermine the Bible go in here and say, oh, look at all these discrepancies. And it's like, well, what do you expect from scribes and Pharisees and Herod? You may not get the most accurate quotation. That's how we could answer them. We won't. But just remember, if there's any discrepancies here, which there are not, but if there are any, they're the discrepancies of the scribes, not Matthew. It's not because Matthew didn't know the Septuagint Greek or Matthew didn't know Old Testament Hebrew. It's amazing what they'll say about him. And the quote goes, the scribes give their own quote, and it's a paraphrase. And it's a little bit of a compilation. They're taking material mainly from verse 2 of Micah and combining it with a phrase out of verse 4 from Micah. And they say, and you, and here's their quote, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this quote from Micah, and here it is, 5-2. But as for you, O Bethlehem, for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth 
for me to be ruler in Israel. And I've highlighted the portion that the scribes take on. So let's do a little comparison. Oh, here's another passage in Micah 4, two verses later. Remember, they didn't have verse numbers, so we refer to it to just to be helpful to index around the Bible. And it later says, and he will arise, this Messiah, this one born in Bethlehem, and he will arise and shepherd his or God's flock. So if we start to do a comparison of the quote in Matthew and the our, you know, English translation in Micah, depending on which one, I think I took the uh, New American Standard here, as I remember. And you can compare and you can see where there's a bit of a paraphrase. This was be called the New Living Translation, if you will. Um, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, in Matthew 2.6, that references, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah. So the place of Messiah's birth is declared, and the geo geographic terminology is updated. Micah has Bethlehem Ephratah, which made sense back in Micah's day, around 700 B.C. Um, but here in Matthew, it's you, uh, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. That would be something people would be more familiar with. It was a little bit updated. And the scribes render somewhat of a clarification. In Micah, it says, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And the scribes sort of paraphrase it a bit differently. You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And it means the same thing. The basic point in Micah is that Bethlehem, God is speaking about Bethlehem, though you're small in population and political influence... You're not even able to be numbered among the major clans in Israel. If you have a clan list and stack them in order of influence, you're at the bottom, guys. You're least among these clans. You're insignificant when compared to other clans and groups. Nevertheless, the Messiah is going to be born from you. From your city, your town, will come a ruler who will be is interpreted as clearly as by the scribes as the Messiah. For from you shall come a ruler, Matthew reads, my people Israel, or in Micah 5, 2, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. A bit more significant difference there, but still, basic meaning is retained for the purposes that Herod asked the question. And this is their quote. We have some fitting detail here for, man, for <clears throat> Matthew's genealogy. Not only are these people in consecutive order, but he sets in, 14, in groups of 14 for his own reasons. But now we have a detail added that it's, O Bethlehem, Judah. This is where the Messiah is going to come from. And finally, they use this phrase in Matthew, again, the scribe speaking, who will shepherd my people Israel? And they gather that from Micah 5, 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock. So we go through all of this, just, you know, we don't want to be experts in this, but just to have confidence that in the rendering of Matthew, it captures the essence of Micah. There's no playing footloose with the scriptures here. There's no hiding anything. There's no manipulating something to make it say what it doesn't. These are the scribes, and they were answering a king who could kill them if he didn't like their answer. And this is what they presented to him. And it's what Matthew records. 
So as you can see, there is no discrepancy. And while it's a Lutz quotation, all the content comes from Micah, and this passage is amazing. And if you'll turn over to Micah for a minute, let's just sort of look at that. We looked at Micah very quickly, very, very rough some months ago when we were dealing with the Old Testament and the kingdom of God. But in Micah chapter 4, you have this passage about the latter days. In the latter days, 4.1, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Now this passage here, this and the next verse or two, also occurs in Isaiah, a little bit different wording. I think in Isaiah it's all people shall flow unto it. What we have here is the prophet Micah is saying things are a wreck in Israel right now. Just remember the first chapter of Isaiah or some of the very uh, difficult to read, challenging read of Micah and some of the passages here, some of the chapters before, just this plodding through all the sins of Israel, enumerating them so that they would wake up to who they are. They would, they would listen to Micah and, and put a mirror in front of their face and change. They didn't, but that was the purpose of it. And in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of all this failure going on in the nation of Israel, including the king of Israel, the house of David from whom the Christ was to come had themselves become corrupt and evil. And God says, you're not going to stop me. All of this failure on your part is not going to stop or thwart my purposes. In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house, that, is, that represents his kingdom and his authority, is going to be established among all nations. And all nations are going to flow to God. And they're going to go to him and say, teach us your ways and give us your law. And they're going to commit themselves to the God of heaven and earth, to the God of Israel. There will be a kingdom in the latter days. Now, 200 years of futurism in the church has unfortunately eroded the sense of what period of time this is addressing. For 200 years, we've been told that this passage here, chapter 4, is talking about a thousand-year millennium after Jesus returns from heaven. And as I tried to demonstrate, albeit very quickly, to demonstrate that that is just not the picture here. The picture here is not something yet future to come. The picture here is something that was established 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brought into human history the kingdom of God and the reign of God and the power of God. And he died and rose to accomplish redemption and he went to the right hand of God and there was this great coronation ceremony when that occurred. And Jesus was installed and invested as Messiah at the River Jordan when the Holy Spirit came upon him, not because he wasn't God, but because he was being anointed as Messiah. The River Jordan was not a place where Jesus changed. It was a place where history changed. It was a place where we went from a promised kingdom of Micah 4 to an inaugurated kingdom of the gospel of God. 
Jesus has now been for 2,000 years at that right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 2 and fulfillment of Psalm 110 and fulfillment of many, many other psalms and many, many other prophecies ruling the nations with a rod of iron and directing human history for the purpose of saving magi. The least expected people to be saved. Probably mentioned before, when in my day the big issues were the war in Vietnam, and the war in Vietnam brought thousands of prisoners from North Vietnam, from that godless country, that communist country, brought them into South Vietnamese prison camps where American missionaries were preaching the gospel. And hundreds and thousands were saved. From America's standpoint, that war was a failure. From the standpoint of the kingdom of God, that war was a massive success. We have to look at the world that way. What's going in Iran and Iraq and all the wars we've had for 20 years there and gospel missionaries have been there encountering Muslims that they never would have been able to encounter another way. And the gospel is being proclaimed. And thousands of people are being saved. People that we do not know of. We will do not understand. We will not know of until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When all of his saints become manifested. That's how we must look at human history. And that is what Micah is about. Micah is about the establishment of the kingdom of God. In history. In power. And that kingdom has a king, and that's what chapter 5, 2 is all about. That there is a king who is going to inaugurate this kingdom. There is a king who is going to manage this kingdom. There is a king who is going to rule over all the people of God. Who is going to feed them like a shepherd. Who is going to bless them immeasurably. Who is going to protect them from evil until the time comes to bear witness to the Lord in their departure. The kingdom of God will be a success, a great success. If anybody ever tells you the church has failed, you tell them to shut their mouth right away. Do it nicely, but tell them to shut up. I had to do this about a year ago. There was someone who came to visit us, and they said, well, the kingdom of God's failed. I said, no, no, we're not hearing that. That's not true. The church's mission is not to fix a broken world. The church's mission is to preach the gospel, and it's been a gigantic success. It's been a massive success. John 10 says, Jesus calls his sheep by name. And he says, I've got a fold here of Israel I've got to gather, and I also got another fold. Sheep from other places that I'm going to gather. Do you think Jesus Christ has failed to gather any one of his elect in the past 2,000 years? Do you think that there is anybody in the last 2,000 years who somehow missed out, missed the calling? Jesus had to say, well, time moves on. Sorry, you know, they're gone. There's you know, just an, another one, a few, but another one I've lost. Do you think that's happened? See, when people get in their heads that the mission of the church is to fix the world, they get all kinds of screwed up ideas. And they make all kinds of very wrong and way misinformed and way misguided evaluations of the church. Now the church on the surface is a train wreck. 
There's false prophets everywhere. There's misguided people everywhere. There's confused people everywhere. There's genuine saints who need to be a little bit more clear about what the Bible says. Sure, there's all those things. But every one of those who were chosen in eternity are going to end up in glory. And that is absolutely certain. And that is the current mission of the Son of God. Not fixing America, not fixing the world, not establishing organizations that endure for decade after decade to become bureaucratic, top-heavy with administrators who have never seen God. Saving people from their sin, that's his mission. This is an incredible prophecy. The king and his kingdom are coming. And Matthew announces that the king and the kingdom has come. Now, the integrity of Matthew's reporting is also demonstrated when people start talking, and it just kills me. When I, when I read these commentaries, the big, thick ones, they're very, I mean, some people might call them technical. I just call them full of a lot of words. And there's good information in there, but they always speak as if this gospel of Matthew, the whole thing's really just written by Matthew. Matthew's personality, Matthew's lack of Hebrew or expertise in Hebrew, Matthew's lack of Greek or expertise in Greek, Matthew's ideas about this, Matthew's ideas about... Like, this is written by the Holy Spirit, guys. That's why I like the skinnier commentaries. But I got to read the bigger ones because now you got to deal with those. Matthew's integrity is presented here. And we don't have to ever question his integrity, but should anyone ever question it? Think about what Micah says in 5.2, the part that's not quoted by the scribes. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Did that not fit perfectly in with chapter 1, the divinity of the Son of God? But Matthew probably said, man, I'd so love to include that, but that isn't what they said. They only quoted a small part because that was the question asked, Where? I'm sure Matthew was dying like, oh, man, this is such an awesome passage. Do I include it or not? Lord, give me direction here. I'm writing this gospel. A whole lot of people are going to read it. I'm accountable to you for writing it. Um, give me some wisdom here. Poor old Matthew. Every preacher has that. How much do I include or exclude? You only get so much time. You only get so much space on a scroll. Or Matthew 5, 4. Just think of all the statements there. The language of the majesty of divinity that Matthew could have included. And he didn't, because the scribes didn't quote that. Matthew could have said, yes, and this reign of Messiah is going to extend to the whole world. Steve, you got it lucky. You get to include it. I didn't, Matthew's thinking. All the preachers that will preach from my gospel material, they get to include it, but I don't because it's not what the scribes said. Matthew is reporting what the scribes said. Well, so how does Herod respond to all of this? He's secretly called the Magi. An honest person would have made an open inquiry, wouldn't have done it in secret. He would have right there said, wait a minute, this is where it's going to be? That's six miles down the road. Let's get these Magi in. Let's talk to them. 
Isn't that what you would have done? Not so Herod, not so. Spiritual person would have done so with a joyful anticipation, not only intellectual curiosity, but man, the Messiah's come. Really? This is like the biggest event in the history of the world, and I'm here, and I could be part of it. Only a deceitful person hides motives and manipulates behind the scenes. And it's one of the things we learn from Herod. Because we're sinners, someone posted the other day out of James about the wisdom that comes from above, the source pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, treated, full of mercy and good fruits. The wisdom that's not from above is the opposite. And as Christians and as sinners, we have to deal with our own rotten hearts. We have our own jealousies. They're real, and we get to see them, and they're not just little jealousies like you might see in a TV show. They're real, awful, ugly, horrid, wretched jealousies that if we let them go would lead to murder like Herod. So if you ever find yourself manipulating things behind the scenes, wake up and repent. Do everything openly. Now, we haven't had any problems with that for a long time, but there was a time in this church where this stuff was going on all the time. And it took almost several years trying to navigate that. Because at that time, many of you were naive and you gave credibility to people who didn't deserve it. But as you matured and as a church matured and as we were able to deal with it, we were able to, those people just say, look, you know, you just need to move on out. If you're not happy here, move on out. We wanted to say a lot of other things, but we didn't. So if you find yourself out in the weeds and doing these kinds of things, it's one thing to have a disagreement. Disagreements are fine. We're happy with disagreements. But if you find yourself manipulating behind the scenes, know that that is sinful gossip. Don't engage in it. If you got a beef... Talk to the person you got to beef with. This kind of stuff destroys churches. And me and Chris and others watch that like a hawk. Because if you haven't noticed, we're in a church where there's peace. And Lord willing, we want to keep it that way. Herod was a wretched person. His sin controlled him. And he got from them the exact time of the star when it appeared. Of course, we know from the later part of the story why he wanted this time. So he would know who to kill, who to murder in Bethlehem, when to start. Herod had already formulated his plan. And he craftily elucidated from these unwitting magi a vital piece of information. Then he says, okay, guys, go to Bethlehem and do my dirty work for me. He carefully wraps his wicked purpose. Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, come back to me because I'm just so eager to worship him just like you. He wraps his purpose in hypocrisy, spiritual language, and people will do this. Every now and then we find some person who is sort of up there in visibility, you know, in the Christian world, I guess. I, I don't get out much, so I, I hear about this person. They say, oh, he was a really important person. I'm like, I've never heard of him before, but I guess he was important to somebody. 
And this person falls, and they start to find out all the ugly garbage going on in his life behind the scenes. And remember, there was a point when that started. And the person made a wrong decision and kept making a series of wrong decisions. We have here in Herod an example of a typical soulless politician in action. No conscience, no soul. And these politicians can be found in the secular world and they can be found all over the church. So here at New Covenant, we tend to be very careful not to inculcate preacher worship. We worship Jesus, not preachers. Preachers are fallible human beings. Always remember that. And just because one preacher said this or that doesn't make it so. If the scriptures say this or that, that makes it so. And if a preacher helps you to understand that the scriptures say this and that, then thank the Lord. Thank them. But do not worship them. They are not authoritative in and of themselves. Don't glory in men. We're told that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4 is a whole section of a letter to a church that had gone crazy. And it started out where they were following and worshiping men. After hearing the king, they went their way, these magi, back to the focus. They continued on their journey. They continued their own purposes. They did not let the evil of Herod deter them. I'm pretty sure these guys suspected something. These had, guys had been in a lot of court intrigues. These weren't naive people who thought that the government was wonderful and that their pol political figures were just oh so, you know, out for the, for the good of the people. The people who believed the actual language of the politicians. Now, they had seen the lies. They had seen the misinformation. They had seen the manipulation. So they probably had some suspicions about Herod. Remember, these were men who had the Holy Spirit. They had some discernment that comes from more than just human experience. And they were not going to let the king's evil deter them. What about you? Are you going to let evil people deter you? Are you going to let evil circumstances deter you from your mission in life, your mission this week, your mission today? Are you going to worry about the wicked politicians who are so much in charge of our government right now? Are you going to let them deter you from focusing on Jesus Christ? Are you going to stay in Jerusalem and debate them? Or are you going to go to Bethlehem where Jesus is? And you have to make that decision every day. And after hearing the king, they went their way. They did not waste their emotions. They did not waste their time. They got the information they were looking for, and they're like, well, thank you, Herod. We'll see you later. And they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And this becomes the difficult passage for a lot of people. And they'll say, well, see, it's a miracle. It's a miraculous star. It's not just some regular phenomenon of astronomy. And <clears throat> we can't really say anything about this. Remember, these guys were astrologers. And from the little I've read, astrologers make all these calculations and get all this information about, ah, you know, this, this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter happened here and it happened in Pisces and that means this and this over here means that. And you're like, what? Whatever it was that they saw had to be visible to the naked eye. They didn't have telescopes. And whatever they saw had to be informational, had to tell them something. And we don't know how they discerned that this star told them where Jesus was. 
It's usually our ignorance of how astrology works and astronomy works that we come to, you know, consider all these predictions about this and that. I was reading one fellow, kind of older from the 1800s, but he said, you know, the, you could have a conjunction of the planets here in this constellation and the way planets work over here, it, that conjunction then occurs in this constellation a few months later. And so they saw it in the east here, but they saw it in the west where Bethlehem was here. Like, okay, that makes sense to me, but I don't know if they're telling me the truth or not. So I wouldn't worry a whole lot about it. All we need to know from this is that that phenomena that God used to speak to those men in their pagan world led them to see where Jesus was exactly. And it stood somehow in their mind, they interpreted it as standing over the place where the child was. And I don't think anybody will ever figure out what that means until the day of the Lord. Another item on the list of things to ask the Magi when you sit down with him in the kingdom of heaven, what were you talking about, guys? I mean, how did this work out? And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And this is just totally amazing. The star indicated the exact place of the king of the Jews. And their hearts were filled. They rejoiced greatly. This was no mere excitement of curiosity satisfied or of a long mission accomplished. This was a deep spiritual joy of the heart that could only come from a living, vibrant faith in God. It could come from nowhere else. The human heart would never rejoice in something so insignificant. And think about it. They were where the child was. Pretty insignificant place. But here they rejoiced. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced with great joy. This is what is noted. It's emphasized. It's multiplied. Their mission was from day one, Christ-centered. They came to see Jesus, not to satisfy curiosity. And as one have observed here, we find faith in an unexpected place. We find faith among Gentile astrologers who lived far outside of Israel. And God has loved and saved all kinds of people for all, all kinds of circumstances from every generation. And he doesn't ask, have to ask us how to do it. Salvation includes some basic components of repentance and faith. Those must always be there. If they are not there, then you do not have salvation. But beyond that, all the circumstances, all the way it looks, all the people, all the personalities. How many colorful personalities are going to be in the new heavens and new earth? How many crazy people are going to be there? Because they're beloved of God. God has this whole human race, and we'd like to think that all of God's people are all just wonderful and sedate. And No, God's people are all over the map, all over the spectrum. All kinds of colors of clothes, all kinds of cultural perspectives, all kinds of food they love to eat. People actually eat sweet potatoes. I can't fathom that. All of that is out there. People who are verbose and vibrant and funny and people who aren't. The Lord loves us all, and he's made us all and saved us all for a reason, and God saves people in the most unexpected places. And so when you're preaching down at the mission, 
Remember, God saves people in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected circumstances. If you're downtown preaching, God saves people in the most unexpected circumstances, the most unexpected personalities, in the most unexpected ways. If you've not listened to the story of the little old man from Australia handing out tracts, you need to listen to it. It's an amazing story that'll just encourage your heart. God saves people everywhere, from every place. And think of their faith. Mary and Joseph had by this point taken up a residence in a house. Matthew again uses this phrase, this is the third time, Mary his mother. There's an import to that. But she's a peasant woman in peasant circumstances, in a peasant house with a little peasant baby, a completely inconsequential setting. These men had been in courts of kings. These men were ambassadors to foreign nations. And they're in this little hovel with a little crying baby. And what do they do? They fall to the ground and worship. How did they see in this little baby, in these peasant arms, in this peasant place, how did they fall down and worship? How did they see the king of the Jews when no one else did and no one else would? All the people of Jerusalem, every last one of them, heard that the king of the Jews was going to be born. And it had credible witness, and none of them came. Not a one. These Gentiles from 500,000 miles away from the darkest cultures on earth came and worshipped an insignificant little child because they were men of faith. The world talks about blind faith. What an absurdity. The Bible talks about eyes wide open faith. It talks about God giving you eyesight in your heart where you see things that the unbeliever will never see. They saw in this child, the king of the universe, they saw in this child, the eternal son of God. And they fell down. And they worshiped him. They presented him some treasures. Treasures which, as you see in other places in the Bible, to be delineated, these are treasures you give to kings. Frankincense and myrrh are oils extracted from trees in that sort of desert land there, but they're very expensive oils. Frankincense works, by the way. <clears throat> I had some sores that wouldn't heal, put some frankincense on it, poof, they went right away. Pretty amazing. But they presented these gifts to Jesus. They did not come to Jesus to get something from him. They came to Jesus to love him to honor him and to worship him. Is that the state of your heart? Or are you still back in self-city, coming to God so that you can have a great life? Have you looked beyond that? Have you fallen down before the throne of God like the angels and the saints of Revelation 4 and 5 to proclaim Jesus is worthy?
Well, they were warned of God in a dream not to return to Herod, and the Magi left their own country another way. And the story is brought to a close. God warns them in a dynamic way. Dreams and visions have a purpose. They're not there to write the word of God. They are there to personally give direction. These Magi serve their purpose to bear witness to Jesus, that he's the messianic king and savior of the world, and they moved on. Who knows what their life was like afterwards? Who knows what they thought? I mean, it's 30 years before Jesus is manifested. They went home to that dark culture they lived in, had to hobnob with all the wicked politicians. We don't know how long they stayed here in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph. We can only imagine what their conversations were. But these men served their purpose. They served God and did what they were supposed to do. It was a very dynamic and I'm sure intense time in their life. And they went home with joy to a mundane world. They were successful in a mundane world. So when God brings you to places in your life where you see the glory of the Lord, you, as it were, are brought up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and you, that could happen for a day, a week, month, a year. I had it one time happen. I'd gone through some really severe trials for a couple of years, but for the next 10, I was just on cloud nine. Every time I opened the Bible, it was golden. But that time's over for me. There'll be times that you will come and go. This will happen and not happen. We, all those false teachings of people who say you can get on this high and plane with God, and then you're going to stay there the rest of your life because you've achieved something. It's like, no. Your relationship with God is going to be like this. It's going to be like the stock market. But it's going to be going up. And it's got a good ending. So be glad for what the Lord brings you to, to witness for him, to say things for him, to have a real participation in his kingdom, that you have a sense that it's real, you can almost touch it, and then you feel like you're put on the shelf, you go home like these magi and just live through the mundane and honor the Lord there and wait till he calls you for your next project. These magi, what amazing men. Men of faith, men of hope, men of joy, men of commitment, men of diligence, men of self-sacrifice. May our faith be like theirs. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for these men. You always present your scripture in the reality of human lives. You write your doctrine in human history and in human experience. Lord, just pray these magi will always be with us, bearing witness to Jesus and reminding us that we are to live for him and unto him and serve him and to be full of exceeding joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.